Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm the family pastor here at Mount Horvath Methodist Church. And uh, it's a joy to be with you two weeks in a row. Something that's gone haywire. I'm not sure. I might pay somebody off. I'm excited being here with you again this Sunday morning. And uh, we are in a series still that we began last week. And we're still currently in a season, as you may know, called Lent, as we are slowly but surely inching our way toward Easter. So for many in the room, potentially you have still decided to practice a self-denial and a choosing to give up a certain things. Anybody still holding strong? No coffee, no sweets, no soda, no TV, all these different kinds of things we've said, we're going to do without this. We're going to say no, because we believe there's something better to be embraced. So God, during this season, it's a chance for him to teach us something new, to transform us in some kind of way. And so even maybe we've not given up something, we've taken on something new to teach us during this season of Lent. Certainly there's tensions here then, leading up into Easter as we celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for 36 years, what I've learned in my life is that there are always tensions in everyone's life, is there not? From time to time, there'll be a tension about this or a tension about that. All of us exist day in and day out with certain types of tensions that exist within our life. It's a pulling apart, as we said last week, between who I am and who I ought to be, between who I am and who I want to be, God's plan for my life and my plan for my life. And what I found is that some of these tensions that come up within our life are time sensitive. They happen within certain seasons of our life. So when I was in middle school, um, I was living in Kentucky and there was this little girl that I went to school with named Julie. And I wanted so badly to ask Julie out to be my girlfriend in middle school. So I did. I said, Julie, be my girlfriend. She's, well, I didn't say it. I wrote it and I gave it to her. And she said, yes. And I was like, awesome. So there we were a boyfriend, girlfriend, which really meant that we never talked to each other, but we wrote notes back and forth. Occasionally we'd tell a friend, hey, go tell Julie this. My friend would go be like, hey, Julie, Trevor said he thinks you have a nice smile. She's like, good, tell him I said thanks. And he walks back over, he's like, she says thanks. I'm like, cool. That's what relationships were like in middle school. Now we worked hard at it. We had 13 days, solid relationship going, 13 days in. But we talked on the phone one night, not far into the relationship, and we had this conversation, and Julie said to me, listen, we need to take the next big step in our relationship. I'm like, okay. She's like, I think it's time that we, like, kiss or something. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, that would, be, that would be a good next step. I think we should do something like that. So she said, how about this? Tomorrow, when we go to school, it's science fair, as you do. So when you go to science fair on the way back from science fair in the hallway, this will go down. Okay, so I went to school. I was so nervous the next day. Our class goes to science fair. Everybody else is like, look at this volcano. I'm like, I got no interest in volcanoes, no interest in any of this stuff because after it's going down. So we started walking back to our room and we had kind of windy hallways in our, in our middle school. And so sure enough, the class went around the corner and there we were, just Julie and I in the hallway, staring at each other like two old cowboys at high noon, <laughs> waiting for somebody to make the move, you know? And so we're standing there and we leaned in and... And that was it. So we walked back to the classroom. We promptly broke up like three days later. But <laughs> that one experience as a middle school student opened up this whole new world that I'd never experienced before. Like I was rocketed into a whole new dimension. And this vortex like swept me off my feet into a whole new thing I never experienced before. I had no idea this was a part of life. It was going to actually introduce a whole new navigation that I would have to do that would increase all kinds of tension with my life, become difficult to master and maybe some of you in the room, you can, you can totally relate to this. This constant attraction and desire and longing for physical relationship and connection, it was awakened right there in middle school. Here's what I know to be true. Sexual attraction is one of the most powerful forces in the world. One of the most powerful forces in the entire world. 
There are literally nations that have risen and fallen based upon this. Some of the best literature we've ever had written in human history is because of this. There are probably some men in this room this morning who have done major dumb things to attract attention from a girl, maybe sitting next to you because of this thing. It has the power to turn our risk-taking on. It has the power to turn our brains off. And handled well, it can result in beautiful and wonderful things. Handled poorly, it's the genesis of heinous and destructive things. Many in the room this morning, maybe you've benefited from this attraction, managed really well. Maybe some of us this morning, you become victims of sexual attraction that's unleashed. There are tensions that exist within the reality of our world that we live in right here and right now, particularly in the West. This is true for us. If you watch movies, music, read literature, social media, it is unavoidable that our culture is more sexualized than ever. And so, of course, it's going to be difficult for us to navigate this today. But the truth is, this is not just a reality for right now, 2020. This has been going on for a very, very long time. So as we talked last week, Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, goes and visits a place called Corinth. Now, Corinth is a place of mixture of all kinds of people and all kinds of cultures and all kinds of practices and convictions all together there in Corinth. So Paul is a perfect place for him to go and become a missionary. He spends a year and a half there, and during his time, many people become Christians, and a church starts. So Paul leaves Corinth, and then he hears about some tensions that have arisen within the Corinthian church. And so what Paul does, he writes a letter back to the Corinthian church to help navigate some of these tensions. There are five different topics that he talks about. We're going to cover all five during this series. The first one that we discussed last week was divisions within the church in chapters 1 through chapter 4. Paul's writing now about a second topic going on within the Corinthian church in chapters 5 through 7, and it's the tension over how to handle sexual desires. Now, I am certain that Paul was not excited about writing this section of the letter, You know how I know? Because I'm not particularly excited about preaching about it this morning. (laughs) But Paul knew this was something that within the church had to be discussed. That there is such power here. That it is so compelling. That it has the opportunity to cause so much damage. Paul had to write about it to those that were living in Corinth and for this church to wrestle with themselves. It's a touchy subject. I get it. It holds all kinds of opinions and convictions and stances, all of which come from individual experiences and interpretations. But just like Paul felt it necessary to talk about that tension within the church, I believe it's important for us to talk about as well. So Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, in this brand new section, this brand new topic, here's what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans outside the church do not tolerate. A man has taken his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship that man who is doing this thing? So again, can you imagine being a part of this early young church? You get a letter from Paul. Everyone's excited. Paul wrote us a letter. You read the first four chapters about divisions within the church. And everybody swipes their brow like, we finally made it through that discussion. And then in chapter 5, he drops this bomb. Everybody in church would look straight ahead. Everybody be cool. We know what's going on. This is a bit uncomfortable. But Paul's going right at it. Paul says there's some specific issues happening within the Corinthian church. He's talking about their handling or mishandling of sexuality. He uses the Greek word that is translated within our Bibles multiple times. You've probably heard it before, sexual immorality. This is the Greek word porneia, which of course is where we get our modern day word pornography. This word is essentially a catch-all word to describe any kind of surrendering of sexual purity from a Jewish and Christian standpoint. 
It's actually a catch-all from any kind of promiscuity of any kind and every type outside of God's intended design. So it seems that Paul is writing with this one word, the very beginning of chapter five, but he's really referencing three things that he talks about, four things he talks about through the next three chapters. So the first one is the fact that there's a man within the church who has taken his father's wife, and I don't mean to dinner. And Paul's very upset about this. Paul's so upset, he says, listen, even the pagan world outside of the church doesn't tolerate this kind of thing. And here you are applauding it. He says, shouldn't you be mourning instead? Paul's ticked. But then he goes on. He says in chapter 6, verse 9, he talks about the practice of prostitution that was going on, not just outside the church, but within the church. Same-sex relationships in the same verse. Chapter 6, verse 16, he again mentions prostitution within the temple. And then in chapter 7, verse 2, Paul addresses adultery and stepping outside of the bonds of marriage to engage in sexual acts. All of these that Paul addresses here in chapter five, he considers to be sexual immorality or porneia. Paul's frustration with the church is that essentially with all these things that were going on, they were normalizing the abnormal. They were abandoning God's expectation on how to handle this powerful, wonderful, complex, magnificent gift that is sex by perverting God's intention for love and relationship. And please hear me, the reason Paul even goes out of his way to write this is because he cares for every single one of them. Every single person within the church, he knows this can be destructive. And so he writes about it. Now, luckily, this is only taking place in Corinth way back then, right? No. We know this is a reality for us as well. Ways that we have abandoned the normal for the abnormal. If only this was a problem for them then and not for us. But each year, do you realize in the United States of America, there are 10,000 children who are entered into child sexual exploitation and trafficking. 10,000 a year in the United States alone. You know why? There's a market for this kind of thing. Do you realize in 2019, three of the top 10 websites that were visited worldwide were adult websites. By the way, those three actually ranked higher than yahoo.com, netflix.com, ebay.com, and amazon.com. You know why? There's a market for this kind of thing. And in fact, those two first issues, those are closely connected. I can't even bring myself to mention the list of the most searched terms in these particular websites, but suffice it to say they demonstrate in the most sickening way the fact that our culture still normalizes the abnormal. Within the past few weeks, HGTV released an episode of House Hunters where there was a thruple, three partners who were in a romantic relationship looking for a master bedroom with three sinks so they could enjoy it all together. At the risk of sounding old-fashioned and stuffy, there were 125 million copies of a book that became a major film that normalized sexual torture. These are just a few of the ways that our culture has given full-go permission to fulfill fantasy or desire that anyone may have, no matter what or no matter how abnormal it may be. And so the reason Paul wrote this portion of the letter to the Corinthians, and the reason I think we need to hear it today, because we have always been in the business of sexually abnormalizing the normal, creating dysfunction in the design, and inviting immorality into the intention. So can you feel the tension? Because I can But here's the thing, as Christians, we should feel this tension as people who live in an earthly kingdom, but who are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. 
There should be a tension that exists here, how we live our life. In order to help the people of Corinth, what Paul does, he begins to reframe for them what it means to be human made in the image of God. So after all this discussion in chapter five, chapter six, he begins to go here. First Corinthians chapter six, 12 through 14, here's what Paul says. He says, you say, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, you say. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise you also. In chapter six, Paul addresses a common phrase that went around within the Greek world. And this common phrase basically means this. Whatever urges, needs, or desires humans have, there's a way to satisfy those needs. There should then be no boundaries to the fact that we want to take care of those urges. Here's the phrase. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. If I'm hungry, then there's food to eat. I should be able to eat as I want. But Rob Bell in his book, Sex God, does a really great job of unpacking this phrase that Paul is adopting to make his point within the church. Many in the Corinthian culture and perhaps in the Corinthian church essentially understood a person to be a collection of physical needs and uncontrollable urges. Essentially, they believe that's all that a person was. If a person was hungry, then food could satisfy the hunger. If someone was craving sexual outlet, then they should be able to meet that need without boundary. Paul, however, confronts his audience to help them see you are not just a collection of physical urges. You are much, much more. You are called to a higher purpose beyond just the things that you desire and the urges that you have. It really is the reason that we celebrate Lent each and every year. I mean, the reason you've decided to go without that Snickers or that coffee or that TV or that Instagram or whatever, the reason you've said no to these things, it's self-denial so that you can embrace something even better. So when we go through the season of Lent, we literally on purpose say, I'm saying no to this so that I can say yes to this. Paul says, just because you can doesn't mean you should. He quotes them. And saying, listen, there's stomach for the food and food for the stomach. I can have anything I want when I want. His argument is essentially this. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead with a bodily resurrection. And if you're a Christian, you will resurrect as well. Therefore, your body matters. How you handle your body is important. It's worth saying again here this morning, you are not just a physical being. You are body. You are soul. You are spirit. You are complex and you are, you are created for connection. So when we convince ourselves that there's no such thing that we can do whatever we want with our cravings, be it food, be it sex, there's no consequences for acting out with these urges without restraint, Paul would argue that's not what it means to be a part of the created order that God has placed. God has put into place and it must be lived within And there are two different parts to his creation before he ever creates humans. The first one is this, angels. And the second one is animals. So within the created order, before humans ever come on the scene, there are two things that are already created, angels and animals. Within the creation story throughout the Bible, we find out the first five days that God creates creates animals. In the Hebrew poem, on the sixth day, he creates man and woman. The Bible says God breathes life into them. He breathes life into them. Humankind is body, soul, and spirit. We are not 
animals or something different. When Jen and I got married, we went on our honeymoon to Acapulco because everybody else was going on all these normal things. We're like, we want to go someplace different, someplace weird. So we flew to Acapulco and had a wonderful week uh, for our honeymoon in Acapulco. I'll never forget on the way back, though, we got on the airplane. We happened to decide to go to Acapulco during everybody else in the world's spring break, like everybody. And so they're all there. And so we had a great time, and we got on the plane to fly home. And I'll never forget sitting on the plane. It was three seats. It was my wife, me, and in this open seat. If you've ever been on an airplane and somebody walks on, you're like, oh, God, please no. And this happened. This young college kid gets on the airplane. He's got board shorts on, a tank top, and he's got a rock star energy cowboy hat on like straw cowboy hat. He walks on the plane, I'm like, you, you gotta be kidding me. But sure enough, come waltzing down the aisle, sits right next to me. And for the next 30 minutes, 30 minutes explicitly describes to me how many energy drinks he drank that week, how little sleep he'd gotten, and all the sexual escapades that had gone between people of the opposite sex that was a little bit, a lot of bit TMI. And he gave it all to me. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, and he takes, he orders some wine, he drinks it, and he passes out the whole way home. I look at Jenna, I'm like, wow, this is quite a a difference of experience over the past week. But I sat there next to Jenna as we flew home, and I thought to myself, this guy has taken a page out of Adam Levine's song, Animal, has lived it out to a T all week long. And I thought to myself, this is not what it means to be human. This is the way you live when you live as an animal. You see, angels, angels are spirit with no body. But animals, they are body with no spirit. So angels, they don't procreate. There's no sex. There's no, there's no marriage of any kind. With animals, pretty much you can sum it up by saying they eat, they sleep, they reproduce. That's an animal's life. You ever been to the zoo before? Believe me. But we're neither one. We are something different. You see, the reason that sex is something that is so powerful because you are not just a physical being that's giving in to a certain urge. You are body, soul, and spirit. There's no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as a one-night stand. There's something that happens, a deep connection that goes beyond the physical every single time. But we're not angels either. You see, in the book of Psalms, it's written that God made human beings lower than the heavenly beings. So we're distinct. We're different. We're not angels. I grew up within the church at a time where sex was the most taboo of taboo things to discuss. Even within my family, we didn't discuss it a whole lot. It was something that for a lot of friends of mine in my youth ministry, we were taught that sex was demonized, that it was something bad that was created by the evil one rather than something that God created that was worthy of being celebrated. And so for a lot of my friends, we became so indoctrinated that sex was bad that even for some of my friends who ended up getting married, they had a difficulty embracing the gift that it was. There are some friends of mine who have even gone through different abuses when it comes to sexuality. And because of that, it was very painful encounters. They felt nothing but guilt and shame. All of these, thought, all these things taught many of us that the problem was sex, not the way we handled it, and to avoid it at all costs. You see, the reason sex should not be ignored or demonized is because it is something that is beautiful, something that is God has created on purpose. It's a doorway to intimacy. It's a doorway to connection. But when we buy into the fact that it's not God who's created this, but something else entirely, we will avoid it at all costs. So Paul makes a massive shift as he speaks through all this. He says, you are not angels, you're human. You're not animals, you're human. Here's the tension that we live within. We can't do whatever we want and live like animals. 
We should not ignore sex as if it's something awful and horrid and demonic because it's a part of what it means to be human. And we live in the tension between the two things each and every day. So Paul says, sex is a part of God's creation to engage in for glorification, procreation, and recreation. It's all a part of it. And it's all something good. But Paul makes a massive shift in chapter seven because apparently the Corinthian folks had written him earlier with a major question. Here was their question. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verse one through four, he says this, now for the matters that you wrote me about, is it good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, relations with a woman? But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sex, relation, sexual relations with his own wife and each wife with, his own, with her own husband. This husband should show, fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So apparently within the church, there was this question. The question essentially went like this. So can we not have sex at all? To which I'm very proud to tell you, Paul says, no, yes, you can. It's actually something that you can do. But the reason that probably the church was asking this question is because there was a group of false teachers in the early church that were walking around. They were known as Gnostics. Gnostics were teaching something very different from what Christians were teaching. They were saying this. You are not a physical body. You are just spirit. So anything that is physical, anything that is pleasurable, anything that is physical at all should be avoided at all cost. Just hang on till heaven and we'll get out of here one day. That was the Gnostic view of the way we lived in our life. So of course, sex was wrapped up in that whole physical, pleasurable thing. So many of them taught, you don't engage in this. So the question from Corinth is, I kind of want to, can I? Paul says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because I want to be very clear, this Gnostic teaching was not Christian. Paul says, yes, you can, but here's the thing. Save it for the marriage. Save it for the marriage. You can take part in this beautiful thing that God has made for us. But Paul says it must be saved for the marriage. Now, Paul does not expound with all of his massive wisdom on the entirety of his theology on marriage in these particular verses, but Paul is Jewish. So Paul has a framework for what marriage looks like and the way it's intended all the way back to Genesis. He had known from a long time ago this Hebrew poem that we just talked about, the first few chapters of Genesis. He understands this. So to unpack his understanding of marriage, you have to understand that when this poem goes on, what God does is he creates things that are complementary to one another. So the Bible says first, he creates the heavens and then he creates the earth. He creates sea and he creates dry land. He creates birds and he creates beasts of the field each one complementary to the other. This is the way that God created in the first five days. Now on the sixth day, the Bible says that he creates man and he creates woman. They are meant to be received in the same manner. They're complementary to one another. So the uniqueness of the feminine creation and the uniqueness of the masculine creation are such that they find their completion and their complement in one another. They are each made within the image of God, each one valuable within themselves. This image of man and woman was meant to be representing also the Trinity itself, which was unique, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but at the same time was one. And so man and woman in a Trinitarian relationship, just as the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, ever giving, ever receiving, so when the two parts become one, here's what the Bible says. They become one flesh. They complete one another, one flesh. 
You see, marriage from a Jewish perspective was held as a sacred connection that was much more than just being about two people who were giving into their urges. They believed that it had something to do in a mysterious kind of way with the kingdom of God, man and woman. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 19 because Jesus in Matthew 19 is talking once again, again about marriage. He says to his listeners, as it was in the beginning, what he's doing is he's pointing all the way back to Genesis and affirming what would have been said by the Jewish poet, by the Hebrew poet writing this. As it was in the beginning, two shall become one flesh. This powerful, wonderful, complex, and magnificent gift that is sex is meant to be shared between only two people and within the sacred bond of marriage. There's actually obvious reasons for this. And one of the biggest one is this. The marriage is meant to be something that has no comparison. No comparison. My wife and I yesterday celebrated 11 years of marriage. We went downtown, had a wonderful time. We reminisced on our children and all the fun times we've had, all the exciting things that we've done, all the mundane things we've done as well. And for 11 years, we look back, we're like, we wouldn't change a thing. It's been so good. And we got married and we said yes to one another. We said I do to one another. And I put a ring on my finger. What I was saying to the rest of the world was, I'm saying yes to Jenna Miller and no to every other woman in the world. I'm sorry. But that's what marriage is. This, this is the Jewish understanding of what marriage is. Two become one flesh. And so when I say yes to Jenna, I'm saying no to every other person in the world. This was the understanding that Paul would have had. But when you step outside of this God-ordained union, we open ourselves up to comparing in all kinds of ways. If we become one flesh, what that means is if we have entered into this with anyone else before this takes place, there is comparison that whether we like it or not, steps into the marriage that you have now. If we've looked at anything on an internet site, there's a comparison that takes place and it's absolutely not fair because it's not reality. And these comparisons come into our marriage with us. And here's the thing, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of contentment. And comparison is the thief of intimacy. Let me be very clear here this morning, as clear as I can be, as I believe Paul is. If you are not married, this portion of intimacy is not for you. If you are married, this portion of intimacy is meant to be shared between you and your spouse, and that's it. So that two might become one flesh. See, Paul's Jewish background would have caused him to write what he writes in verse four with this understanding. He says this, wives, you do not have authority over your own bodies, but you hand it over to your husband, to which everyone in the room says, excuse me? But here's the thing. In the ancient Near East, every culture surrounding this Jewish culture, this is where it would have ended. Women, your bodies are not your own, they're your husband, the end. So what Paul does, he takes it a step further. The very next line, he says, husbands, your body is not your own. It belongs to your wife. This is a massive step forward with an ancient Near Eastern culture. You have to understand this. I mean, this, this is huge for marriage equality, for, for sexual equality between husband and wife, man and woman. Paul says it's mutual submission. You, you give and take from each other and you agree to this. This is what a marriage looks like. There's not one over the other, but instead you submit to each other. Paul says your body's not your own, it's actually his. Your body's not your own, it's actually hers. It's a mutual give and take. Some people might call it a covenant, a covenant. This is actually exactly the way Paul would have thought about this. 
Paul would have considered marriage to be covenant and not convenience. Paul would have seen it as covenant because if, if every Jewish young couple that gets married, almost everyone, they get married under something called a huppa. And a huppa is a cloth that would be placed over top of them as they say their vows to one another or potentially under an arbor. You ever seen Meet the Parents? You know what I'm talking about. So they would stand under this covering and it'd be a way of, of hearkening all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 because in Exodus 20, what took place, God descended on Mount Sinai or also you could call it Mount Horeb, same place descended on the mountain and covered it with a thick cloud. And then God handed over the 10 commandments to God's people. Essentially, their vows. It's God saying, I'll be your God, you be my people. Here's the things that you will do and I will take care of you. It's, it's a covenantal relationship where each side stays true to their covenant. So when a Jewish couple gets married, they get married under a covering just like that to reminisce on what God did with God's people. Because to them, it's very much tied in. A marriage to them is covenantal. It has something to do with the way that God connects with his people, the way Jesus connects with his church. The very end of the Bible, the church is called the bride of Christ. So no pressure to anyone in the room, but your marriage is about much more than rings, cake, and the Cupid shuffle. Your marriage is about the kingdom of God. The way you love one another, the way you submit to one another, the way you serve one another, the way you spend time with each other, the way you serve the world together, all of this is meant to point to something greater, something bigger than just urges. It's covenant. I will stay true to my side, you stay true to yours. So what, Paul, what does Paul expect then from the Corinthian church? All this discussion, I'm sure he was sweaty just writing it. What's he expect from the church? What does he expect from us? I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he gives us exactly what he expects. Here's what it says in verses 18 through 20. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Let me give you the Trevor version. Get away. Run. Get as far and as fast from sexual immorality as you possibly can. Whether you are a single person in this room this morning or you're a married person in this room this morning, Run. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And he says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now I know, easier said than done. Believe me. I lived on this earth for 36 years. I'm a man, I understand. This is hard, this is difficult. But Paul says, flee sexual immorality. He says, do you not understand that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? If you are a follower of Jesus today, if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God lives and dwells inside of you. And so for a lot of us who might feel certain urges, certain desires, certain, certain attraction, because the Spirit of God lives and dwells inside of us, it changes the whole ballgame. Because Galatians 5, and 23 says this, the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Self-control. So Paul says, use that Spirit-given thing with inside of you and flee sexual immorality. Practice self-control. 
Self-control literally means this when translated. Self-control means a control that proceeds out from within oneself, but not by oneself. When we practice self-control, it comes from us. It's a decision that we make, but it comes from a higher source. It's the spirit of God that lives and dwells inside of us. It comes from within you, but it's not from you. It's from God himself. Eric Mason, who was here this past weekend with our men's conference, gave a great example of what self-control looks like. He said, you could translate self-control pretty easily to passions under leash. Passions under leash. Now, I have a dog, and so I've got to get a leash for my dog. In fact, as my dog grew older and bigger, I had to get bigger and, and better leashes to keep him under control. And probably some of us in the room, you got little dogs, you have little leashes. you got my big dog, and you got bigger leashes. The bigger your dog is, the bigger leash that you need. You ever seen somebody walking a dog, but instead of them walking the dog, the dog's actually walking them? It's like dragging them down the sidewalk? You better have a big leash. The whole point of the leash is simply to do this. If this dog wants to go sniff that tree, you say, uh-uh, sit your butt down. We're not going over there. I'm in control, not you. If this dog wants to go sniff that dog, no, no, you sit your butt down. You're under leash. You do what I tell you to do. You're not in control. You want to go dig in that yard? I don't think so. You sit down. You are under leash right now. Self-control. It's passions under leash. I would imagine that in this room this morning, there are some of us that are in desperate need of a bigger leash. We've underestimated the size of the dog. But we can say to God, God, would you enable me, fill me with your spirit that I might live into the intention and the design and the purpose that you have for these attractions that you've given me. I remember when I was in college, there were some friends of mine that I went to school with and we met with one of our mentors and oftentimes the conversation was always the same. These guys were like, listen, you need to pray for me because I, I need these desires to go away because I want these things so badly. I want to do this so badly. I pray these desires go away. And my mentor would say, don't even think about it. Don't pray for those to go away. That's something God has placed inside of you. This is a good thing, but you better figure out how to manage it. You better figure out how to control it. You better let the Spirit of God do that within you because you can't do it on your own. And Paul says, all of this, here's why. Your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. And the price was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You are not your own. So he says, honor God with your bodies because you are physical, you are soul, and you are spirit. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. The reason Paul writes this letter to the people in Corinth is because Paul is convinced that the God that we serve is the kind of God that can redeem broken things. Amen? Amen? The God that we serve is the kind of God that can bring dead things back to life. The God that we serve is the kind of God that can restore whatever's been lost. So the reason Paul writes this, if he didn't believe this, he wouldn't even waste his ink on his pen. But he writes it, particularly in chapter 15, he speaks all about Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. That if Jesus Christ could overcome death, there is nothing that he can't overcome. And the simple fact that me and you, every one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we too will experience resurrection, and we don't have to wait till we die. It could be right here and right now by the Spirit of God working within us. And so this morning, if you find yourself, even now, normalizing the abnormal, 
If you find yourself today with this mentality that food for the stomach, stomach for the food, if I want it, I should just do it. If you find yourself today acting more like an animal or an angel and not like a human. If you find yourself today choosing convenience over covenant, then I believe today the resurrection power can work within us and give us new hope for new life right here and right now. So this morning, I believe that Paul would say this to us. There's an intention that God has for every single one of us. And yes, there might be some self-control that has to, has to come into play here, but God has a great plan for me and for you. He knows what is best. He created us and he designed it all. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father God, I just confess this morning that too often I let urges take over. I let the things that I want to do over step into the things I know I should do. And Father, I know that in this room, I'm probably not alone. That There are things, God, that you're wanting to do within our lives to, to help us experience new life right here and right now. God, I pray for any person here this morning that is single and trying to live this thing out well. I pray, God, you would keep them from believing the lie that everybody, everybody's given up on this. I pray they would see it as something sacred still, something beautiful still. Pray for every marriage this morning, God, that you would help both sides of these couples to fight for covenant, not just convenience, to not get bored and try to find something else, but instead say, no, I'll say yes to you each and every day, and I'll choose you still. God, would you empower us by your spirit to live with self-control within our lives? Thank you, God, for Paul. Thank you for his work and his word to the Corinthian people. I pray that today, this morning, God, we would hear afresh and anew to us today. Help us to honor you with our body, soul, and spirit. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.